Welcome to A Portrait of Jesus with Dr. Bill Creasy. Tens of thousands of you have already listened to Dr. Creasy's one-year Bible, 76 five-star lessons that take you through the entire Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Now Dr. C drills down and uncovers the most important person in Scripture, Jesus. With his characteristic wisdom and wit, Dr. Creasy introduces you to Jesus, not simply as a figure in the Bible or someone you meet in church, but as a living and breathing person, perhaps the most significant person who ever lived. You're going to love this series, and it's free for our listeners. So welcome back. We just read in our last lesson that Jesus went throughout Galilee teaching, preaching, and healing. And we want to have a sample of his teaching. So, on the Mount of Beatitudes, that natural amphitheater on the hillside, Jesus would go down toward the bottom, the crowds would be in the amphitheater portion, and he would speak, and they could hear him very plainly. So we read in chapter 5 of Matthew. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on the mountainside and sat down. A teacher would sit down to teach. I've done that, but I don't like it. I need to move around a little bit. But that's how the teacher would do it, to sit and teach. Actually, the audience maybe would stand. I think that's a good idea. I'll st <laughs> you stand, I'll sit. But, uh, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach. Now, we have the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5 through 7. And any good teacher right, will have a plan for what He's going to teach. I think the uh, for a new teacher, when I taught at UCLA for upwards of 28 years, um, I, I mentored a lot of new graduate students who were teaching assistants. And a rookie mistake that new teachers make uh, is telling the audience everything they know instead of what the audience needs to know, right? So you need to know what the audience needs to know and deliver that. And the second rookie mistake people make is teaching content. Teaching content. Here, my job is to give you this content, kind of shove it into your head. You don't teach content, you teach people. And the vehicle you use to teach people is the content. But you're teaching people. You're making eye contact, you're engaging them intellectually, with humor, with all the rest, and you're teaching people. I could be teaching Matthew, I could be teaching Isaiah, I could be teaching uh, the Iliad, the Odyssey, the Divine Comedy, uh, I've taught all those. And it's not the content, it's the people, and you're using the, the content to teach them. So Jesus was a master at this, and the teaching should be nicely organized so people can follow it, not like all over the place. The Sermon on the Mount is a perfect example of a perfect teaching. It begins with a clever and memorable introduction. Blessed is A, for they shall be B. Blessed is C, for they shall be D. Blessed is E, for they shall be F. And each blessed A, B, the sound in Aramaic and Greek, the text is in Greek, but he would have spoken in Aramaic, it, there's a repetition of sound. You can remember it because of the repetition. And you can remember it because it's really clever. 
Every single one of these statements, the Beatitudes, is counterintuitive. You would think just the opposite, but no. So it's a clever and memorable introduction. Then he follows it with six propositions that exceed the law. You've heard it said A, but I tell you B. And then he has six concrete actions to implement the law. And then he has a three-part call to action. What are you going to do about it? So a clever, memorable introduction, six propositions that exceed the law, six concrete actions to implement the law, and a three-part call to action and get out of there. And you can teach this in an hour, in eight hours, or in a 10-minute mini-homily. You just adapt the material to your time and your audience, but you're really doing the same thing. And if Jesus traveled all over Galilee, where there are 204 towns and villages, how many times did he teach some version of the Sermon on the Mount? I can tell you for sure, many of you are teachers, you don't have a really good lesson, do it one time, and then put, throw it away. You drag that old chestnut out over and over again, and you use it in every possible audience, every possible circumstance. You get invited to speak at some event, and you do some version of that really good teaching you have that you did with the kids in 10th grade, right? You do the same thing and adapt it to the audience and your time frame. And I think Jesus did the very same thing. We have the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew. We have a Sermon on the Plain in Luke. No contradiction. He probably taught it 204 times, right? On the mountain, on the plain, in the water, on the, you know, all over. It's really good material. So, he begins, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are the poor in spirit. I would think, blessed are the rich in spirit. But no, just the opposite. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And notice, it's not blessed are the poor. There's nothing blessed about being poor. I spent 13 years in college, right? Four years undergraduate, two years master's, six years PhD, and I had the GI Bill to pay part of undergraduate, uh, but then I had to do what I had, you know, student loans and part-time jobs. I worked at the Cork and Bottle liquor store in Phoenix, Arizona from four until midnight every night, and yeah, you do what you have to do. But there were times I was poor, and I remember, and, and some, many of you have heard this story in my other classes, because I drag out my woeful story all the time. And, uh, but I can remember a little, my little studio apartment in Tempe, Arizona, on the back of the building, overlooking the parking lot, the big vacant lot on the other side. And off on the parallel street was Jerry's Liquor Store. And I would go out, on Sunday morning, after you know, Friday and Saturday night, out to the vacant lot, and I had a shopping cart from Safeway, and I collected empty bottles. And I would put them in the cart, take them down to Safeway, turn them in for the redemption, right? I think it was like five cent redemption. And whatever I got, I would get bulk rice, a bag of it for that amount, bring it back home, stop at the McDonald's on the way, get a handful of ketchup, and that was dinner. <laughs> And 
oh man, and I've been poor, I've been not poor. Not is considerably better. There's nothing blessed about being poor, but uh, it's the poor in spirit. That is, those who, regardless of how much they have, look into their own heart and recognize the gaping, empty space within their own heart. They've tried to fill it with everything. Sex, drugs, rock and roll, one relationship after another, buying stuff, cars, houses, whatever. But there's this gaping, empty place that only God can fill. Recognizing that is the first step toward God. Recognizing that you need him. You can't want a savior until you recognize your need to be saved. And the first step is understanding the poverty of your own interior heart. Blessed are such people because they're, they've taken the first step. Blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. Not so much in bereavement, although that's certainly part of it, I would think. But blessed are those who mourn about that emptiness. Those who look into their heart, recognize how empty you are inside, and you are heartbroken over it. You mourn over it. You recognize it. You desperately want to fill it. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Not the meek in the sense that you hide under the table and let somebody beat on you. No. Moses in Deuteronomy. <laughs> Moses. He's the guy who went up to Pharaoh, the most powerful person in the world of that day, and he said, let my people go. And he led the people out after the ten plagues. But we read in Deuteronomy that Moses was the meekest man who ever lived. And I, think it's, I always think it's funny when I teach that, because who wrote that? Moses. <laughs> Bill was the meekest man I ever met. But no, it, it's recognizing who you are relative to God. You're not God. You know, we're, we're just little tiny creatures down here. And recognizing that position. You know, when we step out into eternity, what will it be like? Will you approach the throne of God? Oh, I finally get to see you and climb up on his lap and give him a hug? No, you'll be flat on your face where you should be before the power of God Almighty who created the entire universe and quasars and black holes with one hand tied behind his back. No, recognizing your own utter insignificance. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those who desperately want to be seen as right in God's eyes. I want to be what God created me to be. God doesn't make junk. But so often, we make ourselves junk. Hunger and thirst for righteousness, to, to be viewed as right in God's eyes, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown 
mercy. If we recognize our own inner poverty, we mourn over that, we recognize who we are relative to God, and we desperately want to be right in his eyes. Then when we see other people who are proud, who are angry, who are this, who are that, we don't look at them with judgment. We look at them with mercy. Because we know that in the dark of night, lying in bed at 2.30 in the morning, not able to sleep, they're encountering the same darkness that you are. We show them mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Those who want to be viewed as right in God's eyes for the right reasons. Not because, oh, if I, if I come to Christ and I'm saved and I do everything God wants me to do, I'll be healthy, wealthy, and wise. Kind of a prosperity gospel. No, it doesn't work that way. You come to Christ, it's probably going to be nothing but trouble afterward. And uh, no, blessed are the pure in heart. You want to be viewed as right in God's eyes, not because of who you want to be, but because of who he wants you to be. The purity of motive. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The peacemakers. Oh, I suppose those who win a Nobel Peace Prize, Mother Teresa or someone, sure. But the peacemakers, the ones who move through that process of recognizing their own inner poverty, of mourning over it, of recognizing who they are relative to God, of desperately wanting to be right in his eyes for the right reasons, of viewing other people with compassion, compassion. It's not feeling sorry for, it's not empathy. Compassion from the Latin calm, the preposition with, and passus, the verb to suffer. To have compassion is literally to suffer with someone. And recognizing in someone else the struggles that you're having in your own heart and suffering with them and bringing them into a relationship with God that will bring them the peace that you're looking for. That's the peacemaker. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what will result from all of this? A great life? Chances are, you know, I mean, Jesus was crucified. You come to Christ and you give your life to him and you, you put your life in his hands. People are going to persecute you. You know, look at the world today. How easy is it to be out there as an overt Christian? Not easy at all. People ridicule you, they make fun of you. And, uh, persecuted. How do you deal with that kind of persecution? I spent 28 years in the English department at UCLA. And, and uh, 
Everybody knew, I mean, I taught the Bible there, the English Bible as literature. It was a three quarter long course, fall, winter, spring, teaching originally Old Testament, New Testament, and special topics. But after a while, I kind of mashed it all together, just taught through the Bible and picked up the topics along the way. And uh, that was my flagship course. And, you know, there were people who thought that was a little strange. Shouldn't I be teaching Milton? I love to teach Milton, but, uh, oh, you're the Bible guy. <laughs> my very close friend and mentor, uh, Jack Evans, who was a professor at Arizona State University, when I arrived there as a 24-year-old freshman, and Jack became uh, my mentor, uh, my friend. Uh, we had known each other for 48 years, and Jack passed away in December. Uh, Jack and his wife are my children's godparents. Uh, Anna and I go over there every about once a quarter to visit. And, uh, and Jack was most, the most genuinely good man I'd ever known. I, I, had, I grew up in the Presbyterian Church. My family, uh, every, every Saturday night, we had to shine our shoes and on Sunday morning get a little suit on with a clip-on tie and walk up to the Brighton Road Presbyterian Church. My mother was a deacon, my dad was an elder, she was in the choir and the whole thing. And then I got to be 18 and I went off to the Marine Corps. I didn't have to go to church anymore, so I didn't. <laughs> yeah. and, uh, and then the whole six-year Marine Corps experience, uh, I had some major fundamental questions about life. and. Uh, and I would talk to Jack, and we would talk for hours at his office and on a Tuesday afternoon. And, uh, and I came back to God, not because Jack brought me back, but he was an example, the most genuinely good man I ever knew. And to this day, I'd, I'd like to be like Jack, you know? And, uh, he had compassion. He suffered with. And Jack was mocked, ridiculed at the university. He was an overt Christian. And uh, I got a little of that at UCLA. But at, frankly, not a lot. I was the only, the only Marine and Life NRA member in the whole university. So you know, uh, they didn't fool with me too much. But, uh, and I let it roll off me, it didn't, didn't bother me. But, but there'll be persecution. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you. No, because of me. Not because of you, because of him. So rejoice and be glad. Because great is your reward in heaven, for in the very same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So you come to God, you come to Christ, you come to God, and you authentically give your life to God, and when you do that, duck, because you don't know what he's gonna throw at you. I, I remember in 1988, sitting in the living room, and I, I was becoming really serious about scripture and studying, and, and I remember sitting there and praying, and, and, I, and I said to God, 
I give you my life. I'll be your knight and you be my king. And you tell me what you want me to do. And whatever door you open, I'll step through it. And all of a sudden, he started opening doors all over the place. And uh, I, gosh, the very first Bible class outside of the, uh, of the university was at St. Paul the Apostle Church in Westwood in 1989. And then uh, by 1995, I had opened classes down here. And uh, by, year, by 2000, I had like five or 6,000 people a week in class. And, uh, and I was driving all over, uh, nine classes, I was driving all over the place. Phoenix, Arizona, every Friday, I flew over and taught over there. And uh, I said, God, close the door. <laughs> but uh, it, it was an amazing thing. But watch out, you know, it, 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 he's gonna put you to work for sure. But rejoice and be glad. Rejoice and be glad. So nine clever and memorable statements that got the audience's attention. And then he said, you are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything but to be thrown out and trampled upon. Now, you tell me, how can salt lose its saltiness? Salt is salt. You are the salt of the earth. I never understood that. I heard people say, well, salt makes you thirsty. So you, you to make people thirsty for God. That's kind of a wimpy explanation. But uh, I never understood this until we were in Egypt in the Sinai and we were visiting with the Bedouins in Egypt. And not a commercial kind of Bedouin thing like they do, they have that in Israel where you go and they have a whole show and everything. But we were with an authentic Bedouin family out in the desert and, uh, and they made bread for us. And there was a hole in the ground and the women did this. There was a hole in the ground, maybe a foot deep and a yard wide. And they put brush in it and got the fire going and then threw some bigger sticks in it and got the fire going. And then put a dome over top of it, a metal dome. And it heated up. And they took flour and water and made dough. It's just flour and water. And then made it like a, a pizza, spun it. They all made it like a pizza and went whoop and dropped it on top of that dome. And then with a twig, they would move it around so it didn't stick and then flip it over and do it some more. And then they took it off, broke it all up, put it in a basket and passed it around. And we ate the, the flatbread they made. And it was really good. And then they made another one because we were eating it all up. They made another one and passed that around. And then they began to make the third one and one of the women lifted the dome with a, with a stick and the, the heat was going down. So she reached in, in this little pouch that she had and threw something in the fire. <laughs> Up it went again and it got hot again and she made another one. What'd she throw in the fire? Salt. From where? The Dead Sea. The Dead Sea is 35% salt, the saltiest body of water on earth. And the salt content has a whole lot of minerals in it. 
In fact, at the Dead Sea today on the southern end, it's nothing but factories that mine, that they have evaporation pools and they mine the minerals. And one of the most prominent minerals is magnesium. And they draw that out of the water and they use it for industrial purposes, high-tech circuit boards and that kind of thing. And, uh, but what happens if you throw granulated magnesium in a fire? <laughs> up it goes. So you throw a little of the salt from the Dead Sea in, up goes the fire. I'll be darned. And they made the bread on what they called the earthen oven because there's a hole in the ground. The salt of the earth. Oh, I get it now, right? You're to be the salt that fires people up for God. That's pretty cool. Never understood it until we were with the Bedouins in the Sinai. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand, and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your, your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. When you're on the Mount of Beatitudes and you're looking at the Sea of Galilee, on the eastern side, the Golan Heights, what was over there? The Decapolis, nine Greco-Roman cities, the 10th Beit Shan on the other side, down further south, nine cities on the hill. And at night, Jesus lived with Peter at Capernaum, which was just at the bottom of the hill. So at night, if you looked across the Sea of Galilee or you were out on the boat at night and you looked over at the Golan, you saw the lights from the nine cities on the hill. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. That's the image. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bushel basket. Right? Let your light shine out. Then we move on. That's the conclusion to the Beatitudes. Now, we move on to part two. Six propositions that exceed the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I'll tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not a jot or a tittle, will be removed from the law until everything is accomplished. So Jesus didn't come to eliminate the law. He came to fulfill the law. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the very same thing will be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not even enter the kingdom of heaven. So if you want to rely upon obeying the law, the Mosaic law, 10 commandments, not really commandments, 10 principles that then have to be applied with 613 specific commandments in the Torah. Think of the 10 commandments, the 10 principles. Have you obeyed every one of them? 
all your life today? <laughs> no. Um, yeah, I think of, well, I think of Ten Commandments. I guess I've broken all of them. One time or another. I spent six years in the Marine Corps. <laughs> uh, but obeying the law perfectly. If you obeyed the 10 principles and the 613 specific commandments to implement them, and you did it perfectly from the day you were born until the day you died, nobody can do that. Not a single person. Remember Jesus, we'll read the story, when he encounters the young man who said, what do I need to do to get into heaven? Jesus said, obey the commands. He said, I have. I've obeyed, and he lists them, six of them. Jesus did. He said, I've obeyed them all. But he left out four. Which four? The four that had to do with God. The six that he obeyed had to do with other people. Don't honor your father and mother, don't, uh, don't murder, don't steal, don't, all the rest. I did that. His problem was not obeying those laws. His problem was his relationship with God. And what stood in the way? His wealth. He depended on, he didn't need God. He had the law, he observed the law. He was self-sufficient. If you were to obey every law perfectly, but nobody can. When we study Romans, Paul's magnificent work, not the earliest work, it's the first one, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, it's not the first written, it was written in the winter of 57. Thessalonians, Corinthians, they were all written before. But Romans is foundational to understanding Paul. If you understand Romans, all the rest of Paul is a cakewalk. Romans is a brilliant piece of argumentation. And uh, in Romans, Paul argues for the central principle that we are saved by grace through faith in Christ, not by anything we do or don't do. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. That's the thesis that Paul argues in Romans. So what's the purpose of the law? Why did God give it? In Romans, we find out the law is the straight line that God drew against which we measure our crookedness. That's the expectation, but we fall short of it. And even if you obeyed every single law perfectly all your life, wouldn't get you into heaven. When we leave here tonight, and you go out and you get in your car and you head home, if you obey every single traffic law perfectly. You don't exceed the speed limit by even one mile an hour. You stop to a dead stop at the stop sign. You don't make any mistakes. You get home perfectly. There won't be a highway patrolman at your door waiting to give you a gold star. You don't get rewarded for obeying the law. But if you go out here and you kind of coast through the stop sign and there's a policeman there, you'll get a ticket. You're punished for disobeying the law, but you're not rewarded for obeying it. Same principle here with Paul in Romans. It's the straight line against which we measure our crookedness, and we, can't, we know we can't live up to it. It demonstrates our desperate need for a savior.
That's what Paul's all about in Romans and indeed all the rest of Paul. So even if you obeyed all that, Jesus didn't come to eliminate that. He came to fulfill it. Now, about murder. You've heard it said to the people long ago, do not murder. And anyone who murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Again, anyone who says to his brother, racha, a curse word, is answerable to the Sanhedrin. But anyone who says, you fool, will be in danger of the fires of hell. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and remember that your brother has said something against you, leave your gift there, go to the altar, uh, go to the altar uh, leave the gift at the altar, go and be reconciled with your brother, then come back. Settle the matters quickly with your adversary who's taking you to court. Do it while you're still with him and on the way, or he might hand you over to the judge and the judge will throw you in jail. You've heard it said, do not murder. I tell you, don't even be angry. Murder. We read back in the Ten Commandments, you shall not kill. In Hebrew, there are at least six words for taking a life. The word used in the Ten Commandments is specifically the unlawful, the premeditated, unlawful taking of another person's life. That's important. Premeditated. You've planned it. You planned it all out. Somebody at work, a business partner, someone cheated you really badly, ruined your reputation, and you stewed over it, and you got angry about it, and it turned into bile, and you plotted to get even. And you knew this miserable person was coming home late at night, and you got there yourself, you parked two blocks away, you walked to the house, you hid in the bushes, and you knew that he would park right in the driveway, and you stood in the bushes, and you had your Glock 19 there, and that guy got out of the car, and he pushed the button and locked it, and he went up to the front door, put the key in the door, you stepped out from the bushes, boom, and you put a round through his head. That's premeditated. Unlawful taking of another life. That means you're, you don't have the authority to do it. There's some people who do. Unlawful. A lawful taking of another life? Judicially, in war, in self-defense, any number of cases would be lawful. But the unlawful taking, the premeditated unlawful taking, no, of another person's life. Another person, not an animal, not anything else. A person. So it's very specific. You've heard it said you're not to do that. But I tell you, don't be angry. Well, we're all angry sometime, but don't be angry in the sense that it's that, that anger is the beginning of a sequence that will ultimately lead to the unlawful premeditated taking of another person's life. So when you feel that kind of anger and you start going in that direction, get out of there right now. Because when you're in the bushes with a loaded Glock, it's too late. You're going to do it. Stop it before it gets there, is what he's saying. You've heard it said, do not commit adultery. 
But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Who popped into mind when I read that? Carter. Jimmy Carter, right? <laughs> that famous interview with Jimmy Carter. And, uh, but he's right, you know, don't commit adultery. Nobody wakes up in the morning and says, I'm gonna sin big today. Oh, gee, I think I'll commit adultery today. No, it just kinda happens, right? Uh, you know, you, you're at work and you, you're working, you're in the marketing department of a company and you're a vice president there and you're working and, and you're doing a really good job and you hire a couple of new people and you hire a brand new a Wharton MBA and uh, she's 27 years old, really attractive, really bright and you think, I got a good hire here. And here you are in your staff meeting and you're talking, she's really good and, uh, and you're, you're thinking about that, boy, she's good. And then you're down at the water cooler or the coffee room and, and you're talking and you tell stories. And, and then after, I don't know, a, a month or so, uh, you find yourself thinking about her. And you find yourself in the morning, you know, putting on a, your nice clothes. And you're, particular, and, you're, and you're particularly funny when you're around her and, you know, the conversations. And, uh, and then you have a, uh, a presentation that you have to give up in, uh, oh, I don't know, Seattle and, uh, at a new, at a client. And you take her with you because she put the presentation together. So the two of you fly up there and you stay at the Marriott and uh, you're going to have your meeting there uh, the next day. And you think, well, hmm, you know, Seattle. Jake's for fish is just right down about five blocks away. Great fish place, salmon. Oh, really good. And uh, so you go down there and you have the salmon dinner and you order nice wine and you talk and having a grand old time and uh, the hours go by and then you walk back to the Marriott and, uh, and, and, you get, and you get to the elevator and you push the button and, uh, and the elevator's going up and she said, would you like to come in for a drink? And you think, sure. <laughs> So she's putting the key card in the door and you should be thinking, get out of here, get out of here right now. But like a lamb led to the slaughter, you know, in you go. And you didn't plan any of this. It just sort of happened. And it can happen in the other direction too. It just sort of happened. And Jesus said, you shall not commit adultery. Great, good commandment. But as soon as you begin thinking about it in that way, get out of there right now. That's what he's saying. Logically following, it's been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give a certificate of divorce. So from adultery right to divorce, how about that? But I tell you, anyone who divorces his wife Except for marital unfaithfulness, the Greek word is porneia, P-O-R-N-E-I-A. We get the word pornography from it. It's not limited to uh, internet sites, right? It, it's a, a broader category, I think, but we'll, we'll get there momentarily. But you've heard it said, uh, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. That comes right out of the Mosaic Law. There was a big debate in Jesus' day about divorce. Much like today, 
a debate about abortion or, uh, or same-sex marriage or something. There were people who took very strong positions on either side. And in Jesus' day, there were people who followed one of the famous rabbis of the day who said that Moses permitted divorce. Under what conditions? He didn't say. Therefore, under any condition. Now, a woman couldn't divorce her husband, but he could divorce her for any reason. But there were others who said, no, what was it God intended? Adam and Eve together in love with one another and God for life. That was God's intention. And divorce can only happen under the narrowest of circumstances, porneia, porneia. You have to talk to theologians about that or canon lawyers, but I think the category would include things like, you know, you, you marry somebody and they end up being a violent drunk and beating the heck out of you and your kids. I don't think God expects you to stay around for that, you know, personally. Uh, I'm not a theologian, nor am I a canon lawyer, but I, I don't think he'd expect you to do that. Uh, you know, and other things like that. You know, you marry somebody and, and you have a plan for a great life, and then they just never go to work. They just hang around the house. And you go to work. And you do the cooking. And you do the cleaning. God didn't intend that. He wanted to grab the guy by the neck and say, man up here, you know? Um, but except for very narrow circumstances. So what's Jesus' position? We'll read later, when they ask him about it, he'll say, what did God intend? Right? Adam and Eve in love with one another and God for life. That was the intention. Now there are very narrow circumstances under which you can break that bond, but Jesus said pretty much no, no. Again, you've heard it said, that people long ago, do not break your oath. If you give your word, you've got to keep it. But I tell you, don't swear at all by heaven or God's throne or the earth or, the foot, uh, or his footstool or anything. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Wouldn't that be nice? If you say to a person, would you do this? And they say, sure. And then they go do it. They don't come back and make an excuse. Yes, no. Forget the nuances. Don't make the excuse. Don't make an oath. Oh, I promise I'll do it. Oh, yes, I will. And then you don't do it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. You've heard it said, this is number five, by the way, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That's in the Mosaic Law. But I Tevia in Fiddler on the Roof said, great, then every, the whole world would be blind and toothless. <laughs> but I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn the other. And if someone wants to, take, uh, to, wants to sue you and take you to court, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go two. Give to the one who asks, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. I tell you, don't resist an evil person. If one strikes you on the cheek, turn the other. I got a problem with that. (laughs) 
Does he really mean that? Just let him beat you up. No, I think what he's teaching here is that when confronted with that kind of action, you have an obligation to de-escalate. You don't escalate. Somebody hits you, you don't hit them back harder. Kind of a touchy topic these days. But uh, you don't do that. You de-escalate. That's your obligation. But if you're out in the parking lot and someone tries to hijack you in your car and you have the opportunity to resist, do it. You know, de-escalate it if you can. But if you can't, if your life is in danger, you got to step up and do it. You've heard it said, love your neighbor, hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy and pray for those who persecute you that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise and set on everybody. Love your neighbor, hate your enemy. No, we're to love everyone. And that's hard. Maybe the real test is loving people who are totally unlovable. You have some of those in your family, I'll bet. I do. <laughs> you know, everybody does. But it's easy to just write them off. You've got to make an effort. You have to try. St. Teresa of Lisieux, a famous uh, saint, she died at 25 years old. And uh, there was a woman in her monastery, she was a Carmelite nun, a woman who was just, she was old, miserable. Nobody liked her, hateful, nasty. And Therese would go out of her way to be nice to her and do nice things for her. And when the woman was on her deathbed, she tended her. And the woman said, why do you love me? And she said, because God loves you. So I do too. That's the teaching, I think. Six propositions that exceed the law. And then we move to part three, six concrete actions to implement the law. And, oh, we're up on the hour. Next week, Six concrete actions to implement the law and a three-part call to action, and then we move on in the teaching. Jesus was a master teacher, and boy, we're going to get some good stuff as we move through the next few weeks. We hope you enjoyed today's lesson. It's our gift to you. And be sure to check out Dr. Creasy on LogosBibleStudy.com for a treasure trove of truly in-depth teaching verse by verse through the entire Bible, Genesis through Revelation.